Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Business Brew. I am your host, Bill Brewster. This episode features Wes Gray, also known as the Alpha Architect or the ETF Architect, however you may know him. For those that don't know, I think you're going to learn uh, a lot about ETFs. Wes has a number of ETFs that he manages. The most interesting one that I can think of as far as like a current event ETF is kind of the box, B-O-X-X is the ticker. It's uh, potentially an interesting thing to consider as a cash management vehicle in lieu of treasuries. I would encourage you to open up the prospectus and maybe take a look at that. He also has a value ETF and a momentum ETF that we talk about, and he's got an ETF business. So if you are someone that runs long, I guess the perfect connection is probably someone that is long only, lower turnover, and uh, I would just describe it as more Buffett style. I don't know if that's exactly the right way to say it, but that's the way that I'm going to say it. So anyway, consider reaching out to Wes and we'll see. But I hope you enjoy the episode. I certainly enjoyed talking to Wes. He's a great guy. He served our country. It's nice to see him succeed. And I think he's succeeding by helping other people succeed, which is win-win and highly endorsed on this program. This episode is sponsored by DeLupa. DeLupa is founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity into the investment process. DeLupa offers an AI-driven single source for all company-reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. DeLupa scales the velocity of an investment team's idea generation. Analysts spend less time locating and manually inputting meaningful disclosures into Excel and more time synthesizing in the minutes after the print. DeLupa captures data from all company-reported sources, including from footnotes, MD&As, and investor presentations. DeLupa's data sheets include gap to non-gap adjustments, guidance, and all company-specific KPIs. Each data point is auditable to the source for easy verification and accuracy. DeLupa's Excel plugin can also update your existing models for the latest quarter in just a single click. Bulge bracket banks and major multi-managers are trusting DeLupa for their use in initiating coverage, building and maintaining industry dashboards, and keeping their models up to date. Visit delupa.com forward slash business brew to create a free account and learn more about how Delupa can increase your team's speed to differentiated insight. As always, nothing in this show is financial advice. Please consult an investment advisor before making investment decisions. Everything in this show is for entertainment purposes and educational purposes. And do your own due diligence. Ladies and gentlemen, excited to be joined by Wes Gray, the Alpha Architect. Wes, how you doing? I'm good. Honored to be here. Oh, well, thank you. I'm honored to have you. <laughs> Happy to have a program that warrants a guest like yourself. Yeah, yeah. You put a lot of time in. I'm sure I, you get some knuckleheads like me to communicate a few things every so often. Well, you're far from a knucklehead. I first, I guess I first found you with, with uh, the book you co-authored with Toby. And then I've read most of your stuff, so I, I appreciate what you put out there, and I, I think the ETF business that you've created is pretty interesting, so I'd like to have a discussion with you about it, if you're willing. Of course. We dig in. All right. 
You know, I guess the first thing that I'd like to talk about, because, you know, it's it seems timely, is this box ETF that you have. And I'm I'm not sure that enough people know about it as a potential strategy for cash management. So do you mind talking a little bit about what you do and and why how this product came about? Yeah, it's so unfortunately it's a long story. I'll try to condense, but it's probably about seven years in the making. And it's an accumulation of every skill set. We've been building it for about 15 and, and then just it all came together to create like what's arguably or probably the best idea we'll ever come up with, frankly, because it's just, you know, sometimes you only have so many good ideas in life and then you get a really good idea. You're like, holy cow, I'm never beating that one. Like, I feel like that's box, right? And so long story short, I'm sure most of your audience aren't former option market makers or prop traders. So I'll try to explain this as simple as possible. But essentially within the options market, there is a direct to consumer lending market through what they call box spreads, where just the math of put call parity, you can isolate either to borrow or lend directly with other option dealers or other option market participants, or really any market participant, right? And back, back before the 87 crash, people would do box spreads, you know, like Susquehanna would go talk to whoever, Jane Street or Citadel, whoever their names were back then. But the problem is it wasn't, it wasn't, it was just over the counter and you always had counterparty risk, right? So, so finally they got the box spread trade cleared through OCC, which now you have like a centralized counterparty that means like, hey, now I can just go to the market and borrow and lend through the box spread. And I don't care who's on the other side of that trade because there's a clearinghouse that can manage all the counterparty risk, right? Just like they do in stocks with DTCC and like in futures and other marketplaces, right? So, so that's like the deep history on it. Now, so how the hell do you actually do it? Well, so it's, if you're basically replicating a treasury bill at whatever duration, sorry, duration you choose. So for example, if you're gonna do a three month box, what you need to do is you're, you're gonna have four option positions. Two of those options are gonna replicate a synthetic long stock position. That's gonna consist of long a call and short a put at the same strike price. And if, I don't know if you remember like your payoff profiles with options, but if you long a call and short a put, you basically- Yeah, it's just a synthetic yeah, long. Yeah, synthetic long, exactly. And then the, that's one part of a box. The second part of a box is the synthetic short, where now you're going to buy a put and sell a call, uh, sell a call, but at a different strike price. And that difference in the strike price is the amount of cash flow that this trade will deliver whenever those options are going to settle. Like let's say three months. So for example, I'm synthetic long, synthetic short. Obviously that mechanically eliminates all market risk. And what it's going to do is let's say you did the long synthetic at a thousand and you did the short synthetic position at 2000, what's gonna happen is that trade will deliver guaranteed, at least as guaranteed as the option clearing corporation can guarantee it, which is pretty good, that you're gonna get $1,000. And of course, if you know that there's a payment that guarantees $1,000 three months from now, that's backed by a you know, double A rated agency, you know, it's not gonna sell for zero, it's gonna sell for something probably close to T-bills, right? Because it has very low risk 
and you're guaranteed a payoff. So it might sell for whatever, 900 bucks or 950 or whatever the interest rates are, right? And so, and, and that's the lending side of it. You can also short a box and you can implicitly borrow from the option markets, right? So this is just a huge funding market that's pretty well established in like hedge fund prop trading and market making world because it's a way for them to go around the banks. So you don't have to go borrow from your broker or, you know, or, or lend money to your broker. You could just go directly to another counterpart in the marketplace and trade with each other to borrow and lend capital. So, so that's what box spreads are. And then what we thought about is like, well, no one's ever done this before in an ETF. Um, but boy, would it be nice if I could get the box spread somehow in an ETF because one, it generally ha has a, a preferable return profile relative to just straight up treasury bills. But more importantly, it might have a preferable tax profile because we can leverage a lot of our knowledge with uh, ETF, like in-kind rebalance or what have you to essentially create something that presumably might be you know, more tax efficient. And that's basically what we did. It just, it took a long time because every single time we tried to do something, you know, people would ask us, well, what are you talking about? How, you know, how does that even work? So it's just, and no one's ever done this before. So every time we get to another counterparty or what have you, it's just difficult. Like even right now, you know, facts that Bloomberg and Morningstar don't have the holdings data correct with the box. And, hmm. you know, it just is what it is. Like sometimes when you're a little bit too innovative, all the other counterparties, their systems aren't really designed to, to really think about this. You know, it's a continuous putting fire out problem, but it's just the cost of, you know, being out on the tippy spear, I guess. But anyways, it's so obviously- uh, so, Okay, so wait. So if, I, if I'm synthetically long, what, S&P at 1,000? It can be on any asset, and then by I, the way. Yeah, I'm just SPX. thinking S and P because it's easy. Yes. And then I'm going out and I'm shorting yep. it at two thousand mm -hmm. in three months. Yes. What you're saying is that trade should theoretically cost like nine hundred and some odd dollars to throw on whatever. It's, what, it's going to be whatever minus that like a quarter of the T bill yield. Yeah, basically, pretty much. Year, it's gonna right? it's gonna be priced via market forces. And no arbitrage or whatever the interest rate is for for no risk borrowing at that duration. You got it. And then okay. And then what about the ETF structure enables it to be tax advantaged? Well, so I can't remember what year it was, uh, and this is super detailed weeds. Um, but basically, innovator. The guys that came out with all the new ETFs that you know do like defined outcome uh, things. I'm not sure, not sure if you're familiar with those, but they actually went to the. I'm not. I'm an ETF noob. I wish I oh, had okay, more gotcha. knowledge on ETFs, well, it, but I figure you're the guru. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, so uh, why not talk? Yeah, that's to you? why I was asking you because I'll, I'll make sure I'll give context because sometimes I just assume something is common knowledge, and then people are like, "What are you talking about?" So, so just interrupt me if I'm saying something that that doesn't make any sense. So. I will There's do that. this firm, I think it's called Innovator Capital, I don't know exact like LLC name, but I call them Innovator. They came up with the whole defined outcome ETFs, where basically you use options to create different payoff profiles that certain investors might find favorable, right? Like, hey, 
you're going to get the S&P on the upside, but you know, we're going to up to like 20% return, but we're going to cap the downside at negative 10%. And obviously all they're okay. doing is like trading different option spreads around, you know, S&P 500 or different assets. And this is a very Yeah, I common... hear this pitched a lot in like, yes. uh, just like, you know, high net worth yes. pitches, and it's, right? It's yeah. been, it's in structured product insurance world. This has been yes. around forever, right? And the huge advantage of insurance which maybe you may or may not be aware of is they also have a unique tax structuring, right? Like, cause they, they turn something into an annuity and basically it can compound essentially tax free. And then when you're 59 and a half, you can take it out and then you pay your taxes. So it's basically a, you know, mm -hmm. a compounding vehicle and, and they sell these structured products that do all these different like defined outcome things. Right. And so I think that that guy's name, Bruce Bond, can't remember the founder of Innovator. I think that's his name. Someone could fact check me, but he basically had a genius idea. He's like, why aren't we doing this in an ETF, right? ETFs are all about low cost, transparency, and tax efficiency. And insurance is basically the opposite. So let's disrupt these boneheads in the ETF wrapper, right? And so one of the things they also did really well is they went to the SEC and they said, hey, can we get in-kind treatment on options? because it's going to be way more tax efficient and way more cost efficient for the ETFs to operate if we're allowed to do the same thing we do with equities to, to minimize tax drag. We should be able to do that with options, right? And they, and they sent this very beautiful no action letter protest to the SEC and they agreed to it. Why is that important? Well, what that means is now, you know, under, you got to do all compliantly and all this stuff. But now just like in equities, if I have a low basis security, and I want to rebalance out of it because I don't want Microsoft, I want Exxon, you know, I can do that trading through baskets without having to distribute a capital gain. Well, now you can also do that with options, right? And so now a lot of strategies that traditionally have like huge tax drag because you're generating all these different transactions and capital gains, we could use the same technology, which is not near as developed as it is in, on the ETF, or sorry, the equity side of the house, but it's now plausible and we, and we could use that combined with like box spreads and what have you to basically deliver just like you do in equities, a much more tax efficient way to capture, you know, it's essentially kind of like a T-bill type return effectively. And, you know, so let's say I'm a listener that's, that's sitting on some concentrated position in Tesla or Apple or something mm -hmm. like that. How would I go about contributing that and and either diversifying or turning it into another vehicle while avoiding some some gains yeah so here's the problem well first problem is i know way too much about this so we're going to geek out here on this because we deal with this Good. question all the time in real life so essentially if you have a single stock massive position which we'll is called zero basis you're somewhat limited there's one solution called an exchange fund not to be confused with an exchange traded fund, but those typically require a seven year lockup contr contribution to like a limited partnership, tons of fees, tons of bells and whistles attached. And it's, it's could be a good solution, but it's very complex, very expensive and not exactly easy to deal with. That's solution one. The other solution is more and more people are coming out with long, short tax loss harvesting. So, for example, like Quantino is a, is a firm I really like. I think AQR is doing that. 
and what they could do there is they basically run like a market neutral strategy. And then, you know, because it's long short, because you're using leverage, a lot of times with a little bit of capital, you know, you can end up generating a whole bunch of capital losses, right? You're, you're, you're building a lot of unrealized gains on the other hand in a diversified portfolio mix, but you can generate a lot of losses, which then as you generate those losses, you can then start to pare down your long only position. You just hope they're long-term, right? You want to match yes. the losses. Well, yeah. I mean, at some level, yes, but in the end, it doesn't really matter because even a short-term loss, you can mark against a long-term cap gain if, if you got yeah. a problem. Huh. So that those are two uh, probably the most traditional, or you just donate it. Uh, that's another solution. Like, eh, at least, you know, I'm not going to pay the government. I'd rather give it to, you know, Joe or Susie's foundation. You can always do that as well to get rid of the problem. And then the other solution, which is ETF related, which is actually something we specialize on the infrastructure side, is you can do what they call a 351 exchange. However, within 351, which is a section of the IRS code, 351, there, you know, there, the IRS is not, and Treasury is not that crazy. And there's a specific line for funding of a RIC, which is a regulated investment company, which is what an ETF or mutual fund is going to qualify as, right? And so in a standard 351 deal, if you weren't trying to fund a RIC, you could take your zero basis Tesla, dump it into this new C-Corp and not pay tax on that transaction. But of course, you know, I'm sure because someone tried to exploit this at some point, they're like, nope, for RICs in particular, if you want to, if you want to tax-free exchange into a RIC, i.e. like an ETF or a mutual fund, you, you can only get the tax-free treatment if you, if you contribute diversified property, i.e. you uh, can't dump only Tesla in. However, uh, that's smart of yeah, them. But let me define what that means because it, it's... Yeah, what's diversified Yeah, exactly. Because like anything, devil's in the details. So diversified for 351 purposes is the following. No single security can be over 25% of the NAV contribution. So you could put a big okay. chunk, you could do technically 24.99 of something, but then there's another limitation, which is that basically the weight of your top five securities can't be more than 50%, right? So if you have a portfolio that's got a okay. bunch of chunky winners with low bases and some like randos in there or like other ETFs or diversified property, you can certainly get a lot more diversification than, than what like a five stock, 10 stock portfolio looks like. And you know, if you dump it in an ETF, you could then, you know, through the in-kind mechanism, rebalance tax-free into more actual diversified portfolios. But that's the technical limitation if you went that approach. Can you defer the taxes? Like, let's, let's say I wanted to flip Microsoft into QVAP. Yeah. Can I do that yeah. through it? through just as long as I'm not contributing a ton of Microsoft yes. so, and nothing else. So let's say the following situation were to happen. You have 24.99% Microsoft. I'm just making this up. 24.99% Microsoft, 15% Apple, and 10% Tesla. And then a whole bunch of random crap, right? You could, you could say, hey, I'm going to set up a new ETF via 351, and I'm going I'm to contribute these three positions and then these whatever, 20 other positions that are under 5%, we're going to get that converted tax-free. And then to the extent in your investment objective, it makes sense to like 
get rid of Microsoft and go into QVAL. Like, obviously, you can't just do things willy-nilly. It'd have to be... You do it within the ETF that you yes. set up. Yes, and then within the ETF, if you wanted to do that, because it was aligned with your investment objective or whatever, you would just say, hey, Wes, can you please get rid of all this crap and go buy QVAL? That would be fairly straightforward to facilitate in a tax-free manner. So, you know, because that's... Then you have an ETF of ETFs, like a fund of funds, but not... Yeah, you could do that. I mean, ET... the, the trick... There's two tricks with ETF. ETF is an open secret, the ultimate tax-free compounding vehicle of all time. Like if Warren Buffett could restart his life, I guarantee he would have started with an ETF structure because it's basically replicating what he did, but with way more just, it's just a lot cleaner. The other problem people have, you know, in the end, once people learn about the power of the ETF compounding tax benefit, they're like, crap, how do I do that? But then they have a second problem. Well, the issue is that I'm rich and I have a bunch of low basis assets, but I, how am I going to get to the ETF? Like I'm stuck in all this crap that I've owned for 20 or 30 years and I would love to do an ETF, but I can't get there without paying tax and I like to keep deferring. So that's where this 351 solution comes in. That's, that's a tool of how do you get current low basis assets into the ETF structure tax-free, which has limitations. But now once I'm in the ETF structure, it's easy in some sense to like keep the compounding game going on, you know, until obviously you sell your ETF or you die or whatever. But it's, so that's the trick is how do you get assets tax-free into an ETF? And then once they're in there, now we're home free, you know, within limitations, of course. But if you're trading hmm. equities or tactical, it's pretty easy to not distribute capital gains. What do you think the minimum asset value that you would need to have in an ETF is to have it make sense. I mean, well, basically for brain dead, like not reinventing the wheel ETFs, it's like, it's basically around 200 K all in costs. We got it actually a little bit lower than okay. that. So if you think about it, you, you know, and so if you look out to the market for what does it cost me to buy a deferral now, it's usually insurance is your next best alternative. And, you know, if you go buy like a variable annuity, on, you know, it might be anywhere from 25 to 50 basis points or higher, depending on your scale. But let's just say to do an ETF, the cost is 200K a year. Well, if, you know, if you have 50 mil, that's a 40 basis point carry cost. If you have 100 mil, that's a 20 bit carry cost. If you have 10 mil, that's a 2% carry cost. So what I usually tell people, if you're in it for tax only, which nobody should ever be in an ETF only for tax reasons, you know, usually 50 mil is probably like a, mi a minimum, right? Because that's a 40 bit carry cost. That's actually pretty reasonable for like a deferred tax compounding wrapper, especially if you have any sort of activity. And then anything above that, it just gets better and better and better and better. But of course, not everyone hmm. just does the ETF 100% for tax reasons. It's also, you know, you got like a ticker on exchange where anyone that thinks you're cool could be an owner, right? I mean, there's a lot of other reasons from like a business perspective, liquidity perspective, beyond just tax, why you would do that. And actually, I've, I forgot one other way, because I actually live in Puerto Rico, do tax stuff down here. There's another way you could also diversify single stock. There, there's a thing called Act 60, which used to be called Act 2022 in Puerto Rico, whereas if you have a billion dollar Secure, let's say you have a billion dollars of Microsoft, a zero dollar basis. If you were to move to Puerto Rico and live here for 10 years, 
and establish like basically, I can't remember what the technical tax term is, 100% of your basis would be converted into like your Puerto Rico residency. And so you'd, you'd only have to pay 5% tax at the 10 year anniversary hmm. to the Puerto Rican government, which ain't bad. So you can't get rid of all of it, yeah. but it's almost a step up at minus 5%. So that's the only other way I know. How do you like Puerto Rico? What's that? How do you like living there? I love it, man. I never leave here if I don't have to. I spend uh, awesome. 90% of my days down here uh, only when they, you know, got to drag me out for dog and pony shows or shake hands, kiss babies events. They'll all leave this place. But I love it, man. I think it's great. Um, That's cool. But I got a buddy down there. Shout out to my man, Francisco. Yeah, there we go. It's a great place. Not for everybody, but um, I highly recommend it. If, if you kind of got a little adventure spirit, you know, can speak a little Spanish and just like, yeah, like being adventurous and checking out new things. It's a uh, high recommend. So when do you move? I moved about three years ago. I moved during COVID times. Nice. I was finally able to, you know, th- there was about a year there where social networks were broken. And so my kids didn't hang out with their buddies. My wife didn't hang out with her friends. And I was like, huh, this is a silver lining. Uh, you know, this is an opportunity to make a change. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, so just, and then also like the work from home became less of an issue because people were like, oh, that's actually a good idea. To which we were like, well, no kidding, it's a good idea. We've been doing it our whole lives. Um, and so it just, it was like a lucky opportunity where I was able to pivot and I just, we just jumped at the opportunity. And that was, that was also a time when our business was just in a massive convexity change because we were, we were hitting like the 10 year overnight success problem where it's like, 10 years eating ramen noodles. And then we're like, oh my God, we're getting rich guys. Like this actually worked. And, and now, and then, but now I had to get my tax uh, structuring in place. And so it was just you know, all the stars aligned in this situation. Uh, That's awesome, man. Good for yeah, you. Out. So how did you start in the industry? Let's talk about the last, the 10 years planting the seeds. Yeah. So, I mean, man, I, so I started in the business, like, seriously trying to be an investor like in 99 at the height of the tech bubble and then obviously i thought i was a genius because i was a warren buffett ben graham bible thumper back then and i just you know i don't know if you probably remember that but like if you threw a stick at a small cap value security you made 30 percent a year for five six years in a row there and it's hard to not think you're a genius in that sort of environment and so you know i actually i think i launched some fund with like a million bucks or something maybe is it, probably in 2002 or 2001 like when i was a senior in college and i went right into the phd program and then you know eventually i was like all right i got to get out of finance and join the marines that's another story but when i came back in 2008 i then also launched a hedge fund in september 2008 which obviously was a total disaster um and then you know kept going on kept grinding and then my third business attempt in 2010 was the current business and that one basically started because i used to you know i used to write a blog like we still write a blog it was just way worse and and not as good back in the day but i got literally got cold called by a billionaire who had read my blog and read my dissertation and and that was after 2008 when everyone got like kind of fleeced in hedge funds and he basically just said, hey, man, like, I like your stuff. I want to talk. We're transitioning our family office out of hedge funds and LPs 
because we need to control our wealth, go quant, get the cost down, blah, blah, blah. And so huh. they were way ahead of the whole curve on where the world was going anyways. And so basically we started the current form of the business up. And then we did a couple of years of consulting due diligence for just on other managers and helping them build their systems out. And then in 2012, just cause this is what I'd asked for. I was like, Hey man, like, can you seat us? Like the first time I've ever met a billionaire. He's like, yeah, I can, but let's just work together for a little bit. And then, so then we got like a 50 mil seed in, in 2012, basically for quantitative value, the, that strategy. And then kind of the rest is history. And it's then it's just grinding it out. And then, you know, then we learned about the ETF. We started off in managed accounts. And then we learned about the ETF. I was at some rich person conference. Some lady was telling me about it. I was like, wait a second. That sounds like the biggest tax shelter I've ever heard of in my life. And I did more research into it. I was like, holy cow, this like this ETF wrapper, why would anyone even run a managed account? And and I told it back to the, the, the billionaire guys. And they're like, well, yeah, duh, let's do that. And so we basically converted our SMA business way back in the day into the ETF business because it's just, you know, it's a more a better way to manage capital in equities. And that was probably around 2014. And then just grinding it out ever since. Yeah. It's not that's awesome. Yeah, it's not that exciting. It's just, you know. No, it is exciting, yeah. man. This is so, you know, I call this uh show, I call it the business brew. It's not it's supposed to be like I always thought about it like brew, like you put a, a bunch of stuff in a pot of coffee. And then, the, you know, you end up with the coffee yeah. cup. I think a lot of times people look at the end result and they don't realize what went into it, right? Yeah. And they don't realize the grind that it took to get there yes. and how long. And I mean, you you launched QVAL, what, like right in the teeth of a value head? Yeah, yeah, right? we, we so launched that's that not exactly top, from a timing standpoint. Yes, and we have been like in 2017, we had a, billion dollars under management and our average fee was like 80 bips and then all of a sudden the factors really blew out and we dropped fees and the whole etf wheels were in motion for the future and so we went from like kings of the castle to like damn near bankrupt and like refighting again to get to the top of the hill and then covid happened so then i got another as you know value got destroyed in there and unfortunately, yeah. I had like one of my my main business partners commit suicide around then. So we, I've been many oh, times wow. like at the top of the hill, right to rock bottom, probably three or four times. And then this time, we've got so much escape velocity. I mean, I don't, I don't even know how we, we could get taken down at this point, to be frank. But, it, you know, <laughs> there's been many, many, uh, you know, desperate times of, of highs and lows on this journey. And honestly, I, I don't know, looking back, if I recommend entrepreneurship to most people, it's just too risky, man. Like, and you gotta be damn near crazy and, and nuts, which, you know, I used to be in the Marine Corps, so I had good training to, you know, to deal with pain and anguish and emotional issues. And so it worked out, but it's like, they threw everything. How did it help you? Well, I think, I think just, you know, one of the things about the service, you know, and I, you know, I was like obviously in combat and everything and fortunate during a time where a lot of people get killed and died. And like, you start realizing like, wow, like, you know, life's special and it's fleeting and you could be dead in an instant. Um, 
And so once you live through kind of those experiences where it's like as raw as it could possibly get and you come back to the civilian world, you're like, dude, this shit's easy, man. Like, like whatever. And, and so w when you just go through like the Marine Corps and you go through that sort of training, that sort of like experiences, everything is just, you don't stress out a much. Well, some people do. Some people, it affects them and it actually makes them worse because they just, they're too destructed. But some people, it just it, it just makes them harder. Like I wouldn't say necessarily it's a good thing because I know like guys like me, we're kind of probably warped, honestly. But it's good in the sense that you're just so hard, shit just you know goes over. You know you just don't sweat it, and you can grind through anything without even thinking about it. And so that that just mentality is very useful in situations where like you thought you were stud and now you're a total dud but you just you keep grinding no matter what and you just don't give up that's just a good mentality in asset management where it's a freaking roller coaster times 10 so it was, it was useful for me for sure might be easier for you but as an entrepreneur you still got a family right so yeah you're taking you're taking your spouse to the mountaintop and down yes. so so you still got to manage that yeah so the way I always tell that because now all I do is talk to entrepreneurs all day on our infrastructure side. And my number one advice is this is a team effort, right? If you have a wife and you have a family or vice versa, you're the person launching ETF, you have a husband, a family, whatever it is, it's a team game. And you can't get margin called by your family. And I've seen it happen many times where like the entrepreneurs got the mentality to grind for mm -hmm. five, 10 years, but eventually your significant other and your children are like, dude, like we need to eat, bro. <laughs> you need to go get a real job. We're out of this. And so, so it's really yeah. important that you think through that you, you have like, you make sure the family margin call is covered. And so in my situation, I had the cheesiest gig on the planet called being a finance professor where I basically got paid a lot of money to not work that much. And just my work was doing research which is perfect because I'm doing research on stuff I would research anyways if I was going to be a practitioner to develop new investment strategies. And so I'm making all yeah. this money and getting paid, but I don't have the issue of like, I got to work a hundred hours at my job. And then on the weekends when I'm trying to hang out with my kids, I'm trying to build this business. Cause it honestly, that's just not realistic. It's too risky. So yeah. So I always recommend either, either marry well, so your spouse can like float the boat or be born rich, which is also a great way to do it. But you know, you gotta be in the lucky sperm club or find a job where we're somehow like your job is kind of related to a lot of what you might want to do as an entrepreneur. So, uh, you know, for example, if I'm like a business development, like raising capital person for Joe Schmuckatelli asset manager, you know, that's a great skill to have. Cause in the background, I might be geeking out on strategies and like things. And I'm like, all right, if I go be an entrepreneur, this is way easier. Cause the biggest skill set you end up needing is like how to market distribute your product. Cause even if you have a great idea, but no AUM, nobody cares. And, and so, you know, they're, they're, yeah. you just want to make sure that, and it's not easy by the way, but, but you, you got to cover the, the family margin call. Cause it's just unfair to your constituency, whatever that might be. You, you know, it, they get a vote in it too. So we want to make sure you stay or just get VC. That's what VC and PE is for as well. 
where, where if you raise capital, someone else is kind of like funding that risk on your behalf. So at least, you know, you can get a decent salary and pay your bills and eat food because no one is going to be effective if they're always stressed out and, and worried about paying for food. You're not going to be a good entrepreneur yeah. in that situation. Um, yeah. So, yeah. But, you know, just time what are ahead. the common traits of people that you've seen that have made it? So you, you have to be kind of ornery and bullheaded, obviously. Like, you can't give up. You have to believe no matter what people say. Like, basically be overconfident effectively is probably the easiest way to, to say it. That's a necessary condition. Th that may not be the nice way to put it, but you got to be very overconfident slash passionate, whatever you want to call that. And then also have long horizon and make sure your, ca your funding is correct. Like, you can't be getting, like, margin called. So, you know, at least a five-year, maybe if you're going to be an asset manager business, I'd say a 10-year horizon. You know, that's the whole point of 10-year overnight success. So, yeah, just grind it out, overconfident passion, long-term horizon, and just, just willingness to basically just grind it out and do the boring shit over and over again and just have faith that as long as your process is good and as long as you know you're adding value, in whatever you're trying to do, eventually people will recognize that and it'll happen, but you just, it's not going to happen overnight, but it's really simple. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just, and then you need luck, but you can't control luck. So you can't really calculate that. Everybody needs luck, right? It's like, I, I've ran in that situation where, you know, we climbed the mountain and then we went to the bottom of the mountain and then we kind of got luck. So we we're unlucky when we got booted off the mountain. But then we caught a break, and that's what allowed us to climb back up the mountain. But, you know, if I only got bad luck breaks, you're never going to be successful, right? It's, it's like trend following, like a negative value asset. Like, it's just, you're just going to go to zero if you, if you don't quit at some point. Because if you just have bad luck at every single turn, no amount of good entrepreneurship or grinding it out or, or grit or whatever you want to call it is going to matter. You just... You got to have a tailwind at some point. Hmm. I like it. Yeah. That's neat, man. Good for you. I've been looking at QVAL. If assets chase performance, I can understand between box and that, and maybe some of the other things going on, why you have hit escape velocity. But nevertheless, there's still some stink on value. Uh, I have sure. questioned it myself, although not, not in a huge way, but I think people that listen to value after hours would say I'm less valuey than, than uh, certainly Toby. Yeah. One, do you mind talking about your definition of value? Because this has come up on Value After Hours a number of times, and they've told me like three different times, but I don't fully understand where you, uh, how you rank value within uh, category. Yeah. And then two, I know you went on an exploratory, you know, why will value not work last year? I saw a couple of those tweets. You mind sharing some of your conclusions about whether or not the arguments against value have any merit? Yeah, sure. So, so it's very important to your point to define what is value because, you know, it has a million definitions. It's in the eyes of the beholder or some, some level. So in our particular context of how we implement value now is like Toby, Toby and I are very aligned on 99% of this thing. And I love him because he's so hardcore and just holds the line, which is amazing. I obviously believe in some other tools and other religions, but, but I'm also a big hold the line Spartan on, on value like he is, but he's, he's like the poster boy for that. So God bless him. 
But our version of value and approach is one systematic. Because I used to be a stock picker, like didn't work. I, I realized very quickly that I'm, you know, I suffer from behavioral problems like everybody else. And no amount of anything can ever solve that problem. I'm just too much human. Systems solve that. So whatever the hell we're going to do, it's going to be done with a computer, period. Second step, I'm also a big believer in the fear aspect of describing why value works over the long haul. What do I mean by that? Yes, I believe I that value is this idea of buying stuff that everybody hates. It's Ben Graham style value. It's not Warren Buffett's. Like, where are all the dirt balls, the terrible stories, the just wasted, barren turds of the market that are really, really cheap? I want to focus there because I believe, on average, expectations would change from being fearful. And maybe, maybe not being greed, but just not being so scared of these damn things, right? You're going to get meaner versions of expectations, and that's when value will start to make money, right? Because it's all about, you only make money if you can outguess the current expectation and the price. So I think fundamentally that, that's my style of value. Just buy a lot of cheap stuff with a computer, and then kind of one little area where Toby and I, I think have a little bit of difference of opinion is within the dirtball cheap stocks, I like to focus on quality with the idea that, okay, I'm buying dirtball cheap stocks everyone hates, and obviously there's something issue or some issue with their business. <laughs> Otherwise, they wouldn't be in the 10% cheapest stocks. Like, duh, the market's not that stupid. So that what that means is if I want to capture mean reversion, I need to make sure that these things can at least last for three to five years. Right, Because, because yeah. if I buy a dirtball cheap stock that's really cheap, but fundamentally this thing is a dumpster fire and they might go to negative earnings, they're never going to have the opportunity to get a mean reversion and they could go bankrupt or they could be like the falling knife problem. So intuitively, I just like to add quality fundamental overlays amongst the cheapest stocks. I think Toby is more preferential for just straight up dirtballs which actually I don't mind either. It's just at the margin, I like to add the quality overlay. So for me, it's, it's this simple. I like to buy the cheapest, comma, highest quality stocks. Cheapest is priority, but within those, the highest quality. And I'm doing that with a computer. And that's basic QVAL. How do you define quality? So, I mean, we just use an assortment of things, right? Like we have like a little 10 point checklist now, but it, it's things like, hey, like, are, is your year-over-year earnings, operating margins improving? Are you buying back stock? Are you paying down debt? Like, just kind of good old-fashioned Ben Graham huh. ideas. Just fun. Yeah. Like, if you go to work, if you were to go look at like security analysis, and just go flip through random pages and grab ten of those stuff like that, right? Like, are you making yeah. money? Are you financially stable? Are you getting operation improvements? Is, is, are you doing net repurchases? You know, because usually that's a good sign amongst cheap stocks because, you know, presumably the C-level guys are, are being smart about that. Just, you know, common sense quality. And, you know, we have our yeah. methods. And we, we use a bunch of, like, negative screening uh, mechanisms on the top of the funnel as well. But whatever. If you don't want to do a super fancy version like we do, if you just said, hey, I'm going to buy the 10% cheapest stocks on P.E. ratio and you know, make sure they don't have too much debt like an old Ben Graham screen, also a great idea. Like, God bless you. I'm in. 
So that's for me is value. It's just the greed or it's the fear trade with this idea that eventually, you know, fundamentals will mean revert, perceptions, sentiment mean reverts, and that's when you make all that money, right? So how do you avoid catching like cyclicals, like peaking cyclicals? Yep. Or do you? So that, that's frankly, that's part of the trade, right? And the, the yeah. issue with long only value investing, long short is very different because now you got a risk management problem, right? Like I can't be long energy and short tech just vaguely because there's a good chance I'll go bankrupt before anything works, right? So in a long yeah. short context, which is very different than a long only, you have to sector neutralize. You have to do all this crap because you're in the get, you're in the risk management game because you're basically running a levered portfolio. In a long only context, the, the the issue is sentiment and hate and discontent is highly correlated with sectors and industries, right? And I was using an example of like ninety nine, like you know, okay. So we're going to force ourselves to own 50% tech and the cheapest tech stock is a 50 times price to earnings ratio. That's not going to work here, right? So, so you yeah. have to, unfortunately, take on tracking error because value, like the whole thing we're talking about, is highly, highly correlated with sectors. You're going to find the vast majority of dirtball, cheap, hated securities in sectors or generally. In it's highly sector. correlated, right? And, and yeah. so that's just the, the fact of the matter. Now, on the cyclical thing, that's part of the trade because it's all that's the reason they're so cheap, right? Like the whole point of value investing, at least how I like it, is I'm going for expectation mismatches. Where this firm, its energy is the greatest example ever the last few years. These firms are making more money than God. Nobody cares. They'd rather pay 50 times revenue for whatever NVIDIA, I guess. I would not. Yeah, yeah, but you know, I you know, not. I mean, that's the pitch, right? It's like, well, these energy <laughs> yeah. guys, yeah, they're making all the money, but we're ESG. We're going to all do everything with wind tunnels or wind farms now. I don't even know what the pitch is. It's ridiculous to me. But all these things, they have this like overhang of, oh, it's cyclical. They're going to be dead. Meanwhile, all they're doing is printing free cash flow. Like to yeah. me, if you buy that at the right price, even if it mean reverts, like and even if it does what they say, as long as it doesn't, you know, fall as bad as what people had priced in, you still could make money. Right. So so even if let's just pretend half of energy goes to wind farms, Exxon is still printing dollar bills and they might even own the wind farms now, too. Right. And, and so, yes, yeah. maybe their earnings like slow down or they're cyclical. But if you bought it at, at such a cheap price where the hate and discontent suggested that Exxon's going out of business, you can still make money, right? So it's, yes, it matters. And we've looked at everything you could ever imagine. Like, we're like, hey, let's do averages. Let's do CAPE ratio type earning lookbacks. None of that shit matters. What matters is what's in the operating income the last 12 months. That is proxying for this mispricing element on average over time. And the cyclicality yeah. is well, part of the Well, you and Toby are very, very close, as you What's said. That? You and Toby are very, very close, as yeah. you said. Yeah, exactly. Right? He's EV to EBIT. That's basically yes, the same. Yes, exactly. Right? And, and I do believe in some sort of diversification. Like, I would never recommend, like, okay, the cheapest stocks, 100% of them are in, like, the oil patch. 
let's do a hundred percent that. Cause that's just, if that's the only investment you have, it's just too much idiosyncratic risk. I would agree with that. But if you want to capture the value premium, you have to allow a lot of flexibility. You know, so we have like, I think 20, 25% bounds where, where you could be way off whatever the S&P is, but you're never going to be like 50% in one, in one industry, obviously. That's just, that's even too crazy for me. Now you could argue you could go pure all in, no matter what unconstrained, but you'd only do that if you also owned you know, some SP 500 or other crap. If it was like your only investment, that would be kind of crazy. And even like Warren Buffett and concentrated stock pickers don't do that. Um, yeah. So, well, you just introduce massive path dependency yeah. to something that otherwise doesn't need to exist. Yes, exactly. Right? And there are industry risk too. Like, like they could just turn off an industry. The government could just say, Nope, you're not playing anymore. And yeah, yeah all those cheap stocks are now really cheap because they're worthless. Um, so, you know, so you want to have obviously some diversification to avoid like crazy tales like that. And there's a lot of different opinions on this. We're just, we're like Toby. We're going to go as pure as humanly possible within reason and, and just go for it. We're not here to benchmark hug. See, I, I've said a couple times that I might just index on this program. I have not spoken precisely enough. My real answer is I have come to... <laughs> I feel like an idiot saying this out loud, but it's true. I've come to really appreciate the tax benefits of ETFs. Oh, yeah. Because it really sucks when you're really right on something and then you got to stroke a check to the government. Or you got to own something that's like not cheap anymore and you're looking at foregone opportunity and it's like, you know. Yes. All right, if this is one of the few businesses that can grow to the sky, this can work. Yes. But if it's one of the 95% of normal businesses, I got to get out. And if I got to get out, I got to pay taxes. And that like, that sucks. I'm telling you, I spend 99% of my time figuring out tax structuring 1% on the strategy. Why? Because the tax is like a 50% carried interest around your neck. That, that like that yeah. dwarfs so many other variables. I don't understand why people don't, think about tax so much more than they spend on investment it it well it because matters. because most people or at least a lot of people in the industry don't have the same incentive that you do to tell the same story so that story is not what people are hearing or thinking about as as often i that's think that's true it's it is very not transparent like there's not like I mean, Morningstar tries to do after tax, but it's it's something that's just it's not discussed nearly enough. But yeah, obviously an ETF, like it doesn't matter what you put in it, but if you have any level of activity, the ability to compound tax deferred for 20 or 30 years versus having to pay taxes every year and the optimization problems like, well, I have to own this overvalued turd because that's better than paying the tax on it. Like the ETF just eliminates that whole problem which is beautiful. Yeah. It's now it's like you have a massive 401k where you could just invest optimally. Like what makes sense to compound capital? So it's, yeah. But the downside is, you know, and we obviously know a lot because we have a huge business, is launching an ETF is not exactly easy or cheap. You know, it's 200 Gs a year you light on fire, minimum. So you got to have like pretty serious capital to even consider that. You already got to be rich. Well, how do you get rich? Well, <laughs> you get lucky and you probably didn't pay taxes and you compounded at a high rate for a long time, uh, you know, but, but yeah. people that are trying to do it, your next best alternative is probably just 
buy other people's ETFs that are close enough to what your investment philosophy is that's not going to drive you too too wild. Um, yeah, well, and to your point, if you do buy other people's ETFs, then they've already lived through the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. Some of that may be worth outsourcing. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> right, like it's not all. It's easy to look at the at the gravy train at the end and be like, "I want that." You got to be willing to live through the cost. Yes, um, for sure. But that said, just because I'm biased, because obviously I have ETFs, like. If you do have the passion, if you do have the desire, and you would do this for free, and just because you love the game so much, I get it. There's people out there like that. Like, yeah. I'd probably do that. If someone had gunned to my head and said, hey, you know, you're not getting paid shit anymore to run out for architect and do your business and do everything you do, I'd probably still do probably 95% what I'm doing right now. I'd be mad. I'd probably whine and complain a little bit, but I'd be like, yeah, whatever. Well, I like doing that anyway. So then that's when you know you're kind of programmed to, this is probably the right idea. Uh, yeah. It's just kind of what you wanted to do. You were born for this uh, type of thing. Can we talk about another church that you seem to pray to, which is Momentum? Well, listen, can we, can we pick up part two of yeah, this? Let's do it. Well, thank you for taking the time here. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, no worries. At this time of year, we always host a lot of people because it's, you know, 80 degrees and perfect weather in Puerto Rico. So <laughs> we magically find ourselves with like hosting barbecues every night and drives my wife insane. Um, but, you know, is what it is. Cost of doing well, business. You live in Puerto Rico. Nice to live somewhere that people want a vacation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. So um, I wanted to ask you about your other church that you prayed to. I know that you've you've found, you know, statistical outperformance historically in value the other the other book that you wrote was about momentum and i'm curious for your thoughts on momentum or what you found with momentum strategies yeah so but as a native value investor you know you're kind of taught that all that matters is some fundamental to price and you shouldn't just focus on price or technicals or any of the mr market aspects but then the problem is when you start reading enough research and you hold you know you're, you're trying to be an evidence-based investor not a feelings-based investor it becomes pretty clear pretty quick that momentum is something you should strongly consider and so it you know took me a while to wrap my head around it but mo momentum is this idea that just buying winners so stocks that have been doing well relative to all the other stocks continue to do well in the future that basic concept is arguably one of the best strategies that you can do, arguably even better than value. That doesn't mean you should not do value because they, they happen to kind of yin and yang at different times, but that, that's essentially momentum. And, and again, for me to get there, it, it took a while because I was fundamentally still am a value mentality type person, but now I'm a believer in both. How, how persistent is that momentum? I mean, do you, do you pretty much just say, it's, okay, well, if I'm going to buy into that as soon as the moving averages cross over, I'm out or something like that? Yeah, it's less persistent in the sense that if you do a generic value strategy, like let's just say, hey, we're going to go buy the 10% cheapest PE stocks or something like this, you know, it, it doesn't matter too much whether if you rebalance that every month or every year, you're still going to capture the effect. Right? It's obviously better if you did it monthly rebalance, but then you got to consider taxes, fees, and all this other stuff, but it still works. 
with momentum strategies, if you don't refresh them quickly, they're worthless. So like, hmm. for example, an annual rebounds momentum strategy is all, all but a waste of your time, where, whereas it only works if you have faster frequency. And that kind of makes sense because it's more of like a sentiment, you know, you're basically front running people that are chasing shiny rocks all the time. Yeah. And shiny rock chasers change their minds a lot. And so it's really important in that strategy to just, it has to be a much more actively traded strategy. We're doing it monthly now, but even quarterly, it's still not bad. Hmm. Interesting. I, I mean, it, it makes sense. The other thing that I think is is sort of nice about it is momentum can move factors, right? It kind of morphs with whatever is working, I guess, That's is true. how I think about it. Yes. We do live momentum strategies. And in, I think, whatever it was, 2020, 21, we were like a Kathy Wood clone. And then, hmm. you know, after that momentum blew up, obviously, because we do momentum strategy, you quickly shift. And then we were an energy fund in 2000, you know, late 21, 22. And so momentum, the best way to think of it's like a chameleon. Like it's just where the chameleon colors change depending on where the, where the mojo on the market is. And it just adapts. It's a very adaptive strategy. It can be anything to anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as you said, it's whatever the shiny rock is of the day, right? Exactly. Whatever yeah. has momentum, that's what you buy. It, it's yeah. really a pretty brain dead strategy. That's not very intuitive, but it just works, I think, or the long haul. Huh. Well, I really appreciated, you know, the work that you put out and I, I appreciate you expanding my mind a little bit about, I read the DIY investor. I had all, all your books are like right there on the bookshelf together. So I think I found you in like 2019 and I appreciate what you've done. Hey, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry that I've contributed to your brainwashing uh, in the financial markets, but ho hopefully some of the knowledge is useful. Indeed. Hey, I wanted to circle back to something that you said about Buffett and an ETF and, and why... Why do you think Buffett would have been in an ETF structure? And the reason that I ask that is I'm kind of curious if if the moment, like it seems to me that ETFs can attract money when they're working. And I, I'm not sure if that would be a positive in like Buffett's strategy is kind of what I totally get it from a tax perspective, but I was just curious. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the main reason I mentioned that is just, if anyone follows Buffett, you kind of realize his genius is not really picking st stocks. His genius is lowering frictional costs and avoiding taxes. That's what has allowed him to compound, not just high rates, but high, re high rates after fees and after taxes. And, you know, obviously the ETF is basically the ultimate way to do, to achieve both of those. Now, to your point, which is actually a very good one, ETFs are not permanent capital. You know, to the extent you're, you know, you're on board with Buffett's strategy, you give him more money, he deploys it. To the extent you think he's an idiot, you take capital away from him. However, that said, like the nucleus of the core strategy itself, and to the extent you didn't give him too much money so he would have too much scalability and not be able to play with the, the things he likes, which is actually his current problem, I don't think it would actually matter. It's just the end investor could screw themselves. But Buffett himself is just going to be managing a pool of capital and investing whatever pool of capital he's been given the best of his ability. And if people want to ride the train, great, they can ride the train. If they don't want to ride the train or they want to get out at the worst times, you know, obviously you cannot control that. It's not like permanent capital stuck in the fund. And that's their own problem. But, but I still think it would still be a pretty useful vehicle 
for you know for someone like him for sure especially to the extent he's trading in things that are relatively liquid and scalable now, now it might be too much because he has you know hundreds of billions of dollars and there's too much transparency in an etf so at that scale if he's being super concentrated and you know he's trying to buy like huge stakes as a percentage of the business that's obviously not going to work in an ETF structure because there's all kinds of limitations and issues with the 40 Act. But but taxes, frictional cost, and early day Warren Buffett, I think he would definitely at least strongly consider that wrapper. As far as people like considering that wrapper, one of, one of the things that I had asked you about when we were getting ready for this, I said, you know, I'm curious for your more interesting ETFs idea ideas or whatever. Like, what are some ETFs that people should think about or may not know about is probably the better way to say what I'm trying to say. And one of them is, is you brought up, you said the interesting deals are less about the substance of the ETF, but how they became an ETF. And you cited CCMG. And I was curious if you wouldn't mind just briefly describing what that is. And if somebody that's listening, if this kind of conversation resonates, you want to talk a little bit about your business on how you're helping people launch ETFs. Yeah, so so CCMG is one of the, the most recent conversions we've done where you can always launch just a normal ETF. Just you start up an ETF and you, you hit the ground running. But there's also an ability to seed an ETF tax-free with current assets, typically low basis assets. And we've done that on mutual funds, limited partnerships or hedge funds and separately managed accounts, typically through like an RIA. And so the CCMG deal was, was a monster SMA deal where there was you know, thousands of individual separately managed accounts that were syndicated all together with low basis securities that all contributed simultaneously to seed an ETF. In that case, it was almost $800 million. But we've also done mutual fund deals that were almost a billion dollars. And we've done hmm. several LP deals that weren't that big, but we did one that was over a hundred million dollars. The main idea is that, you know, a lot of people look at the ETF wrapper, they're like, man, that's so awesome. The tax efficiency, the fees, the transparency, like that's clearly the future in many respects. But, it, you know, I have a bunch of low basis stuff right now. And I don't want to sell that, pay a bunch of tax just to get into the better wrapper. And so what we've kind of focused on our ETF structure is how do we solve that problem? How do we transition you from A to B, where A is the inefficient way to manage capital, B is the efficient way to manage capital? How do we do that without having a tax bill? And, huh. and, and so that, that's something that's super interesting for if you do have listeners out there that are, you know, investment advisors hedge fund managers, or even just ultra high net worth. And you want to try to, you'd like to manage your money in an ETF because who won it, but you know, how can we do this without killing you on the way into the ETF wrapper? Yeah. I, I am thinking of somebody right now. And I, as soon as we're off this, I will at least ping him and maybe actually write just an intro and say, Hey, I think you guys should chat because especially if you can convert mutual funds, that seems to be a way to take what per I perceive to be sort of a dying business and flip it yeah. into more of a growth strategy. Yeah, hundred percent. And obviously the devil's in the details, these things are, there's way too many lawyers involved. So it's frictional, it's painful, tons of brain damage. But if you're thinking about this as like a five, 10 year thing and not like the next six months deal, 
Okay, so we have some one-off cost and brain damage, but it sets us up for a long-term success. That, that should be a no-brainer for most people, but you do have a lot of legacy and status quo bias, or even great ideas, you're like, eh, we'll just deal the next month. And then you say that for the next, next month or the next 10 years, and then you find yourself dead and out of business. That's something you obviously wanna avoid. But I also empathize with that because it is a pain to deal with transitions and you know explore a new business model and deal with ETFs and what have you. Yeah, but it, it would be an interesting idea to sort of buy like dying mutual funds and then convert them to ETFs to the extent that it was just the mutual fund wrapper that was causing some of the decay Definitely. in assets uh, under management. I and mean, there's a business out there. It's that'd be complicated. But, you know, to the extent that you can go in there and get the key, the key, like anything is price paid, right? Yeah. Like if you can go in there and buy the assets as they are, which is basically a dying legacy thing that's going to be bankrupt anyways at some point, and you could pay that value and then turn around, flip it, convert it in ETF and, and clean things up. But the problem is usually an M&A, like, the mutual fund people, when you, when you're like, Hey, I'm going to buy your stuff. Cause your business sucks. They're like, well, great. What do you want to pay? And you're like, well, not a lot. <laughs> and they're like, no. you know, okay. And, and, and then, and then they're like, well, that's weird. Well, okay. Maybe we will do it. And then you got the problem is you need to explain to them because you need a lot of people on board to convert to an ETF. And then the minute you explain like, Hey, here's what we're going to do to unlock all this value. Here's how we're going to do it. They're like, Oh, well, instead of paying me what you wanted to pay me, you're going to have to pay me more now. Cause you just yeah. told me how you're going to add all this value and you're like, well, I'm going to add all that value, not you. And they're like, well, yeah, but just pay me for it anyways. So, so those, those deals, it's all about the art of the deal and like, you know, finding a win-win to make it work. And in my experience, it's just easier said than done. So, yeah, well, that's, that's what you do on podcasts. You just say things that are easy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then... but it is an entrepreneurial <laughs> opportunity, right? If something's hard, that usually means there's like a return on capital tied to it. And if you can solve that, that's how you make money. So if you have any entrepreneurs listening or people that are out there, I mean, there's definitely a value creation situation on conversion from legacy to ETF wrappers, which we kind of sit as the shovel maker, but someone needs to be the deal maker. And you could definitely make a ton of money if you could get everyone to sit at the table and agree on something. Uh, yeah. Hmm. For sure. How'd you find yourself as the shovel maker? Like, it, how'd that happen? We do all the, so basically what happened is we never in a million years would have thought we'd be a shovel salesman for ETF infrastructure services. And it sometimes life just happens. And we, we were always kind of like dudes hanging out in the garage trying to survive in the ETF business for over a decade. And we built all this infrastructure, did everything ourselves. And then, you know, you wake up four or five years ago and now everybody on the planet is like, man, how do we start an ETF? But geez, that's really hard and like tons of costs and super expensive and annoying. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nice if we could just go rent Wes's infrastructure? Because they already solved this. And then we finally just had to get our head around opening up our infrastructure to other people as opposed to just using it for our own ETFs. And then once we figured that out, it was just, it's kind of like, I'm sure it's probably what Amazon thought when like, we built all these servers, we built all this infrastructure to facilitate our storefront. And everyone's like, man, it would be nice if we could use your guys back in tech, you know, and sure enough, AWS was born. 
it was kind of like what happened to us. Like we had like a, an AWS basically buried in the backyard, essentially a gold mine that we didn't know we had until we just thought, thought differently about it. So it was just a change in mentality about what's our, what's our value proposition in the ETF business. You know, maybe it's not making ETFs, maybe it's helping other people and selling them a beautiful, low cost, high quality shovel. We might be really, we might be better at that than actually creating our own ETFs and trying to sell them to the world. That's, that's difficult. We don't have a monopoly on that for sure. Yeah. Huh. Well, I thought about you this weekend. I had something that didn't go quite so hot. And for those that don't understand what's going on, we, we ended part one and started part two and we had a weekend in between. So that's where this comment comes from. And I thought about you talking about your experience in the military. And I said, you know what, if guys are going through that, whatever I'm going through isn't so bad. And, you know, I just, I want to let you know that somebody that sit, sat here and watched, like you, you write the books and I wasn't as close as many were, but it's really cool to see you succeed. And it's nice to hear you excited that it sounds like your business has hit escape velocity and you seem like one of those guys that's out there doing the right thing for the right reasons. And, you know, I'm happy that it happened to you because I, well, I'm happy that you made it happen and I'm happy that it seems like you guys hit escape velocity. It's, it's very cool. Yeah, no, appreciate it. Yeah. It's, you know, it's all about having a good team and good people around you setting a good culture. And we obviously want to give it forward too. So like, you know, if you're an entrepreneur or anybody, just I'll talk to anybody. I don't care if you're a billionaire, you're broke as shit. Cause I've been in, in that prior, or I've been in, I've been in that position as well. Just feel free to reach out and, you know, we're always happy to help people try to achieve success and win in the game. It's, which is extremely hard. So all how can people find you? On the Alpha Architect side, just alphaarchitect.com. On the infrastructure side, etfarchitect.com. And just, you know, hit us on contact us, depending on what aspect of our business you're interested in. And we'll be in touch. It's just, it's that easy. Or on Twitter, I'm, at, you know, at Alpha Architect on Twitter. Also a common place you can hit us directly. All right, cool, man. Well, thank you for carving out the time for two straight day or two straight work days. And I appreciate it. And we'll be in touch. Yeah, you got it. Appreciate the time and uh, honor to be here. All right, cool. <laughs>